Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business where your future is without boundaries and our approach is to. I am joined as always with my incredible co-host Dr. Biagio Palese. Hello Biagio! Ciao a tutti! Welcome, welcome to another great episode. For today's episode, Movies Done Independently. The Gateway is proud to welcome Eric Norcross. Eric is an award-winning filmmaker, published writer, and podcaster. He is an experimentalist that approaches everything as a learning opportunity, and although his work is in a variety of mediums, all of it goes back into cinema in various forms. In addition to his certifications in graphic design, video, technology, and film, he earned a BA in cultural studies from SUNY Empire State College and an MFA in writing from Sarah Lawrence College. He has won awards for his work in experimental and avant-garde cinema, and in 2012, the Manhattan Film Festival created the New York Spotlight Award for his short film, Caroline of Virginia, which they continue to award annually. Please follow Eric's work and enjoy this episode. Eric, welcome to The Gateway. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you, Russ. We we are excited to have you. So I always like to start these episodes kind of at the beginning and, and, and a little bit of history of where you're coming from and, and how you got involved with film and experiential creativity within the medium of movies and all that stuff. How did you get to where you are today? Well, today I am 41 years old and I am a fully functioning independent filmmaker. Um, and it started my junior year of high school in Portland, Maine. Uh, my main high school was Portland High School, but every morning I would actually commute to a secondary vocational high school. And for the first two years of my high school career, I took a graphic arts and printing course where you would learn about offset printing, how to do darkroom work. And that sort of became the root of my visual arts background. And then for my junior and senior year, uh, my, my original high school, Portland High School, tried to put me in a criminal justice class for some random reason. I have no idea why. And my mother called them pitching a fit. And they're like, well, does he want to go back to the vocational school? And I said, of course I do. Like they had, they just introduced this video technology class. It's a two-year course. I have two years left. Why don't I just do that? And I was hooked right away. The moment I, I found out that I could take home their cameras, which back then were just VHS camcorders, <laughs> uh, I, I was just, I was doing all these experimental films. Now this class was geared towards teaching people how to shoot news, you know, like local news Got it. and how to do journalism. And I'm like, well, maybe someday I'll be interested in journalism, but right now I just want to play with these cameras. So I started making like music videos and all the things that kids do with cell phones now where they just, they play around, they do uh, montages, sync music, all that. Everything that's being done now, I, I was doing back in 1998 through 1999. My senior year of high school, I produced my first feature film where I did casting calls, I auditioned people. I spent an entire year shooting it because of course I was still in high school. I had local celebrities from the media. 
Um, we had some award-winning filmmakers in our town, so I got them involved. They went on to win Project Greenlight uh, and had, oh, hey. had careers in Hollywood. They were the second, the season two directors. There was there were two directors in season two that were making that film. Okay, okay. Uh, they're from my hometown as well. Very and cool. So I, I was really finding my way into the indie film sort of community that we had in Portland, Maine, and and by the time I graduated, I had applied to film school. Um, only I didn't remember applying. <laughs> this is the weird part is uh, somebody from the vocational school or the high school, I don't know who, took my film that I had made and applied on my behalf. And wow. they accepted me. And this was at a film school in Vancouver. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to film school. And that same person also got me money for books through some grants. Because I didn't, all this stuff was not on my radar. You know, when I went to my guidance counselor in high school and I said, I think I want to try to find a way to make movies. Does the University of Maine have a film or video program? She laughed me out of the room. She said, doesn't your dad have a union that he can put you in? Like that was her right. word for word response to me. <laughs> and so I'm just like, you know, somebody did right by me. I don't know who it was to this day, but I guess I'm going to the Vancouver Film School. And I, it was a year program. I left in August of 2000. I came back in July of 2001. And um, that sort of became the root of my brand because one thing I realized about film school is they're, they're training you to sort of be a grunt on a movie set, but they're not training you how to be an artist with a practice, which is really uh -huh. weird for me because I knew that, I mean, I didn't know the language back then, but I knew that I wanted to be an independent filmmaker with a voice and that this would be my medium. But there's really no school to do that unless you're going to like an art, art school. Right. But even then, art schools don't really teach you much about the business. They're definitely mm -hmm. not gonna teach you about the film business. Um, art schools, film schools, writing programs. I did an MFA writing program late in life. Mm. This, this is sort of something I discovered over the years is no matter how much you study in a medium, nobody teaches you the business. And so pretty much by the from the time I got back from film school, I was trying to discover what my business model would look like throughout my life because it wasn't going to be the standard, I make a film, go to a film festival, get greenlit, you know, for the second film, so on mm -hmm. and so forth, it was going to be something different. And so that's sort of how it started. I know it's a long-winded answer to your question, <laughs> but we have a lot of years to go before I get to 41, which is how old I am now. Uh, but it, it really was just like trial and error of making as many films as I could as constantly as I could. I just did a video recently for TikTok where I talked about how I never owned a camera for the first decade I was doing this. Wow. Um, I always borrowed it. The first two years it came from the high school and then I would borrow an analog camcorder from the film school to do my experimental work. When I did my short and feature films post high school, uh, post film school in Maine and in New York when I finally moved here, I was always borrowing the camera. I didn't get my first camera until 2009. So, um, it really just became about finding a way to always keep doing it. And some of it's rooted in fear, but also <laughs> some of it's rooted in seeing what happens with people who didn't pursue uh, their dreams. I see, especially in New York, oh my goodness, a lot of people living in quiet disenchantment. 
and I did not mm. want to be that and I mm. still don't so I just my whole th- being is about continuing to find a way to keep doing it so um you know that's our podcast that was absolutely inspirational and we're done now <laughs> <laughs> but but truly Eric that that's I, I think that comes across uh in all of the avenues you're pursuing within your your creative work, what your your films, even your TikToks, you know your your podcasts, all of those different areas, it it connects really quickly. So I, I'm I'm very grateful to to have you and to have you spreading that because I think a lot of people do. Um, that quiet disenchantment is pervasive across many elements of our of our world. So. Uh, before we we get into some more of the nitty gritty here, I, I'd like for for some of our our listeners to define a couple of the terms that that you're using because um, I, I think that will help kind of explain what what you do and why what you're doing is a little bit unique. So when you say, can you define like independent filmmaker? What that is compared to um, you know James Cameron's Avatar and all of that stuff? How do you what does that define that? I think that'll help. So. When I say I'm an independent filmmaker, I am literally by myself. I'm, I, you know, I've built my entire practice around being a practicing artist, not so much a working filmmaker. I see. Um, I do sell my movies and I do generate income off my movies. So I guess I'm a working filmmaker, but I don't have a cinematographer. I don't have a sound mixer on set with me. I don't have a gaffer to help me with lighting. Mm. Um, my entire process in the space in which I work is designed to be a one-man show. Uh, And this is by design, uh, not that I wanted it to be this way, but that it kind of had to be this way because Mm -hmm. when you make films on an out-of-pocket budget, you're not necessarily going to have access to the talent, the collaborative talent that somebody like James Cameron would have. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important too that the listeners understand that when you hear uh, a pitch release you know, like, let's say you're reading an article about the latest film that won con, mm-hmm. it might be labeled as an independent film. Right, right. Most of the time, uh, it's not really that as independent as the people selling it say it is. <laughs> I see. Um, the, the winner of Sundance a couple of years ago, or one of the winners, had a budget of several million dollars and was already in the industry. So that's definitely <laughs> not me. Um, right. And that's not what I consider an independent film. That's more of an independently styled film, which is something that sort of uh, people, somebody like Harvey Weinstein started uh, back in the 90s. He, he made these independent style films that weren't- More like a genre, kind of a, yeah, a, an yeah. aesthetic it, is it what you're It feels like saying. it was made on a smaller budget than it was. Got it. But- um, these things are as close to being independent as you could possibly get because of my lack of crew. Right. Um, and it honestly just comes out of the reality that um, if I'm self-financing it, mm-hmm. I need to be able to have a process I can depend on to get me to the finish line. And it all comes from experience of, you know, I've shot and directed films done under the sag after union umbrella. And if it falls apart, they don't care. They're like, okay, well, we got our payments in. So, Uh, uh, and so, so it sort of becomes like, well, I need to protect my investment because if I'm paying my actors, which I always do, I believe in that. um, I have to be able to finish my movie in one way or another. So the cameras I shoot on are always mine or something I, I can get access to if mine breaks. So that it's very commonly accessible equipment. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I always have, you know, backup options in terms of like locations and talent that way. Um, once I start a project, I know for a fact that I'll be able to finish it unless of course COVID hits again. <laughs> but even, <laughs> even with COVID, like I still finished the project I had started. So. Wow. Which, which is just a testament to, to what you're doing here. Now, uh, just for one more definition here, um, when you're saying experimental um, film making, what is that different than um, just filmmaking? So with filmmaking, if I were to produce a film for a client that's paying me, which I negotiate those kinds of deals all the time because um, that's how I make my money. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a guy who wrote a pilot, it's a musical, and he needs me to direct it so that he can then pitch it to people. That is not something I would want to experiment with. So we sit down, we make a plan, and we know exactly what we're going to shoot before we go into it. When I make one of my own films, I I go down to the basement of my apartment building, and I don't really know what I'm doing yet, but my camera's ready to go. And I just sort of feel my way through whatever type of scene I've created. it might not necessarily be in script format. I, I made an entire feature film. I made two feature films entirely out of a collection of short essays that I wrote. Um, I did one essay about what it feels like to apply to jobs in the current job job market as a creative person. In that essay, I described it as me peeling off pieces of my soul and putting it into a black hole. I don't know what that's going to look like on film, <laughs> but I had black paint. I had a lot of 20 ounce canvas and I had my camera in a really dingy dark basement. And so I go down to the basement of my apartment building with all these supplies and I start putting together a scene. And then once I, once I figure out where to start with that, I start shooting and then you keep shooting some more and until you sort of feel like you have enough. And then in editing, you're still experimenting because, you know, there are no storyboards in this process. It's just feeling your way through. And I do it sometimes with music videos too, where uh, I got this friend, Lindell, she scores all of my movies at this point. And I just did a music video for her where I said, I don't have an idea, but maybe we can find it. So we get the camera and we go into New York city and we're just walking around shooting willy-nilly I come home I put it out I put all the footage out on the timeline and I'm like well this is this is half of it we need to shoot again and she says oh I don't want to go back to New York and I'm like I don't either and so (laughs) we we decided to go into the middle of the woods uh, in southern Staten Island and we shoot again with a completely different she she looked completely different different outfit and I said I said to her you know your song is about an artist being finding herself at odds with what the world says she has to be, which is basically my brand anyway. And I said, we shot in the city and we shot here and it looks like two completely different characters. So your music video, as I see it at this point is complimenting the song and interpreting it as that it is a, now a film about two different characters. The one in the city represents the person society says we're supposed to be. And then the artist that we're trying to be. And she was blown away by that. I'm like, and she's like, you didn't have that going into it. I'm like, no, we found it. And that's sort of a great example of what's happening on a larger scale with the films. Right. Right. That's okay. That, that, that was very helpful. And, and it sounds um, like a truly creative process. Um, 
it's it, you know how I always describe it, Russ. Hmm. The, so my main influence is the art, the art gallery scene in New York City. I love the artists that right. are present. There's nothing like it. And so I, the art I gravitate more towards too is where if I can look at it and I could be like, I see the psychological event that transpired in the creation of this art. Mm-hmm. And then that's what inspires me the most. And so I always describe it as that. It is a psychological event. And if that psychological event isn't there, that's when it starts to feel a little more formulaic, which yeah. drives me away really quickly. Mm-hmm. That That's interesting because I, I think now um, film ha- has become so integrated in in our culture across the world that uh, even people that might not identify themselves as as you know movie buffs or, or things like that can identify the the formula within a, a given genre movie things like that and and it really quickly it removes you from that suspension of reality when we go see movies and when I go see something new or different it it, it grabs me in a whole different way when I can't see the formula so I I, I like that there are people out there still trying to find those, those moments of, of true psychological commitment to, to that art. So again, truly, Eric, thank you for, for all the work you're doing here. Now, I, I want to kind of pivot into where we come in within technology. This most people don't give credit or I don't think they understand how much technology impacts art, whether it's a paintbrush, whether it's uh, Gutenberg's printing press, whether it's uh, a camera, whether it's the evolution of cameras and all of that stuff. We now, and I apologize for my ignorance here, we, I think we now have made filmmaking as accessible as possible. It's not the days of Kevin Smith having to go sell his comic books to have <laughs> access to film, literally the, the film to copy, to make his stuff on. We're now like, well, you have it in your pocket and, and go from there. Um, is that, in your opinion, and I understand this is just opinion, is that giving film as an industry and as a medium of art um, more, is, is it good that more people can have access to it or is it lowering the quality because more people can access it and not necessarily have the skills or the, the appreciation of what it is? Oh, that's a complex one. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot going on. First, I love that it's more accessible than it's ever been. Um, again, with that TikTok I previously mentioned before, I was talking about how I never owned a camera. Had I had the cell phone I have now in 2000, I probably would have never gone to film school. I probably would have just kept right. making movies on my own accord. The only thing that brought me to any institution was because I needed facilities and equipment. And so I've seen a lot of great work from a lot of great creatives who would never have done that without today's equipment. So I think on the technological front, it's a good thing. Um, I don't necessarily believe that it lowers the quality of something. Mm-hmm. I think what one of the things that, one of the contributing factors to why a lot of films seem to be suffering, and I don't know if you agree that they are suffering, but I, I feel like the quality of films has definitely gone downhill. Mm-hmm. I think it's because more and more of them are being made by committee which has a much bigger influence in Hollywood, especially. Um, 
everybody wants their safe bets and to have a safe bet you pretty much are investing in properties based off a spreadsheet rather than the talent of a filmmaker um and so a filmmaker worth their salt can use any piece of technology and do something amazing with it case in point david lynch <laughs> oh yeah yeah um, oh yeah, yeah it yeah, doesn't yeah. matter Ooh. if he shoots on film or video or just does one of his short weird animation things <laughs> they're always going to be really interesting and i'll never be able to let it go out of my head for at least weeks after so Mulholland drive still <laughs> oh my God, best yes. with me and stayed with me for my entire like lifetime so sorry that, that is a masterpiece <laughs> right and right. what what's funny about that though is it was supposed to be a pilot for a tv show and then when it wasn't going to get picked up, he just turned it into a movie. And most filmmakers aren't taught how to do that. That's just right. something that's in somebody. I and did not know that. What's interesting, though, is he's actually more of a mixed media artist than, than a filmmaker. So I think that also speaks to even the more to this idea that it really is the person behind the camera and also how they were trained. Um, and so if you have a film school that's training people to be grunts making a film according to a certain uh process and formula they're not going to be able to improvise the way a mix a trained mixed media artist is going to be able to improvise like david lynch right uh, and you know i'm sure i'll get a lot of flack emails about that statement but uh <laughs> whatever uh yeah so it, it really is more about the people and i just don't think that people are being well trained in in filmmaking yeah as well as they used to be um think about like Steven Spielberg, mm -hmm. the most bankable director in the history of Hollywood. Right. This dude was making films with an eight millimeter camera when he was still a kid. Uh, with, you know, he would have, he would, his father taught him how to create the illusion of bullets hitting the ground by hitting a board in the ground and flinging up dirt. So he was already making war movies before he had a career. And, and that's the kind of mindset like that these people are supposed to have, but so many don't have. I don't see anybody with that level of passion. Uh, and it's also the reason why as much as I love film and as embedded in indie filmmaking as I am, my podcast, which has over a hundred episodes, mm -hmm. I've hardly had any filmmakers on for that reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just, they not think they're not talking about film at the level that I want to talk about film at. They're, they're more project managers now um, than, yeah. than, than actual artistic eyes and, and things like now, of course there, there are still those doing that, but a lot of times you need a director is turning into a leader on the film set of getting the job done more than getting the, the shot that you're really looking for. Yeah. And I think that's actually really great terminology. Like I wouldn't have naturally called them a project manager, but somebody from tech would, but it's much more <laughs> accurate to call them that. And that's of course, by design, corporations want to be able to manage every asset of the product that they put out. So right. it makes sense that they would steer their output in that direction. Perfect. Eric. Uh, yes. I, I want to jump into the conversation. <laughs> and again, I want to thank you for being with us and uh, I appreciate all you do. And I, my dad is a photographer has been for, for many years. And so I, I get the artist component a lot. I don't have as much talent as him and uh, I appreciate <laughs> people that do. Uh, one thing that, uh, I mean, I've seen with him and with, you know, technology and being digital 
cameras and it's the ability that you know even if uh, you don't make a great shot the first time now that those images are free uh, you can take 10,000 of them until you're happy or you can put it on your computer and you can modify them you can alter them and you can make it look uh, as much as you want right so so technology truly disrupted uh, that aspect of you know capturing the perfect moment uh, mortalizing something that uh, you know just just somebody that is creating as that type of eyes and uh, ability can do right so it, it, it's I, I agree with you I I think making more accessible is is great because not all the people have access to the same resources uh, but correct me if I'm wrong like I, I think is uh, on the downside of it uh, the the appreciation for uh, like the art itself it's 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 a risk in the sense that if I can produce the same image, for example, from my laptop using, you know, AI or whatever, does uh, does does the value of what you're doing or what other artists are doing uh, decrease or or I don't know? Uh, it's just like what, what do you what is your perception of this? Like, what? So, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I I uh, grapple with this every day. So. I'm an advocate for 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter filmmaking, which is um, a very inaccessible medium to me at this point. It's so expensive that if I were to only say no digital, only film, mm -hmm. I would never make a movie. I would never be able to do really anything because it's yeah. so just prohibitively expensive. And it also depends on just a lot of other services existing, which are increasingly not existing like labs. We don't have any more labs in New York. Uh, and so digital is important just to be able to keep doing it. And I think that with the change in technology, how creative processes are done are going to change. It's just the nature of the beast. And the thing that will allow certain creatives to stand out is how they limit themselves. It's really tempting to go to a wedding as a photographer and just knock off six or seven SD cards worth of photos, knowing yeah. that they're only going to have like less than a gig delivered to them. <laughs> but um, and from a safety standpoint, that process makes sense to me. Um, they're paying you and you want to make sure you have enough to work with. Um, but when it comes to being an artistic creative, the challenge for everyone is going to be all right you you know you can do it this way but why not limit yourselves why not create rules around what you do one of my main rules is i only do three takes and if i can't get it in three takes either it's not meant to be or i'm just stuck with it and have to work with it hmm. um whereas now as long as you have a hard drive big enough you could do as many takes as you want but that doesn't necessarily make you a disciplined creative and I think that's actually a great word to describe what is going to be needed with this kind of technology is discipline. Because, and that also comes with AI too. What are we going to be using AI for? Or uh, do we have the discipline not to use it for things that maybe we shouldn't be using it for? And of course, that's a whole big sociological question that we don't need to get into. But because, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, James Cameron <laughs> and all these other filmmakers have told stories about what can happen. But um, <laughs> 
yeah, it's just, it's a matter of discipline and finding a process that pleases the, the creative. And, you know, when you are producing client work though, I would like, I would rather do more takes as many photos as possible. Cause I've done those types of photos, photo gigs before, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about like the, these projects that are near and dear to our hearts, the ones we want to be remembered for a lot of discipline is going to be needed. Uh, and then, but then there's also, and this is really important, the experience, you know, digital video has often thought to be more disposable than film. Nobody really put much thought into the archiving of it. They're like, I'll just encode it and put it to the cloud. And it's just like, well, what are you encoding it to? How much resolution are you, are you losing? That sort of thing. And who's running the cloud? Like what happens if the, <laughs> if Amazon decides to close down that business, like not that they're going to, but I'm just saying like, yeah. whereas with film, the, the amount of money that goes into just keeping film negatives safe is insane. Yeah. They got whole museums dedicated to it. Right. Uh, and I think only now they're just, they're just talking about like, what do we do with the digital negative? What do we do with the, the raw files that the camera put out? Um, and it's, it's so much data that it's, it's a question that probably really won't be adequately dealt with for a while, but yeah, it's just, it's, there's no answer yet, but it starts with discipline and then you have to value the experience that you went through creating it. Cause I know that like with the last two feature films I made, they were shot on a black magic, which is a digital camera. The, it was shot with ProRes files. They're very, in the grand scheme of how people look at digital cinema, they're very disposable files. If I deleted them, nobody would care. Mm. Uh, and, but that doesn't mean there's no value to it because the interactions I had with the actors were really valuable. Right. Um, some of the B-roll that occurs outside of the final edit, I know 10 years from now, I'm going to go back and look at it. I'm going to be like, oh, that's what I was like back then. <laughs> so like that's where the magic is it's it's not it's not really in the format or even in the in the process that the format dictates because the process is inevitably going to change it's just the nature of reality you know how we commute to work now is not how somebody commuted to work 200 years ago right right so so eric within filmmaking i, I movies all that stuff i, I think for me, when we're looking at things like special effects, I feel like that's gone through the transition that now is potentially happening um, within the whole film and then all of society. So, uh, you know, we, we could have blood capsules and, and mix corn syrup and dye and, and have someone literally drool blood and throw it at them. Or we could have, you know, a computer do that and come in afterwards and make it there. Uh, and we kind of have that now that it's like, well, we could have someone write uh, a speech or we can have the AI just go through and, and, and it'd be close enough. Like it, it, it passes. So are you, when, when we're thinking about what AI can do as someone that is really interested in the experience within capturing those moments, uh, is that alluring to you that that potentially um, getting rid of some of the legwork and the monotony mm. of of filmmaking is that kind of nice if 
and and I'm not saying it's there yet or it's going to, but if there was this magic AI that could say, hey, here, here's a script for you. It's beautiful. It's set. You're good to go. <laughs> um, you know, is that still something that you would say I'm, I'm going to kind of refrain from? Or is that something that maybe you'd integrate or you would just completely dive into if you kind of had three levels of of implementation almost? Well, I think it, it depends on the circumstance. I see. I would naturally gravitate towards doing everything practical, but of mm -hmm. course, I know that in today's world, it's not it, not everything is going to be practically done. Right. Right. Um, in the end, it's just a tool, and and the, every tool is best implemented uh, strategically. Mm -hmm. So I was recently asked to act as a walk-on role in somebody's horror movie, and they said, "We could if you're not comfortable." with blood, we could just do it digitally, which mm. is, I mean, I feel like this is a great example. And I said, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> like <laughs> I made my own blood to make sure that they used <laughs> blood and uh, you know, they did the scene, it was gruesome. And they're like, dude, you made like the greatest blood. I'm like, yeah, corn syrup, red dye and a hint of chocolate syrup is all you need and you don't need to bring in visual effects people for that and they're like and so they started doing it more and then more and, and now they invited me back to another production because they're like we're so glad you did it it looked way better than the tests we were doing and it's just a matter of like you you pick and choose how you would do it now if they had a scene they'd already shot and they can't get the actor back and they'd like wouldn't it be great if we had spots of blood here and here that's where you employ those tools mm -hmm. um, at least in my process now there are people who are going to lean hard on it because they love the tools most filmmakers love the tools editors mm -hmm. love the tools and so why not um and it, i had a similar conversation with this pilot that i'm in negotiating right now where um the guy's like, well, I was talking to an editor and he says that we could do all of this digitally if we just shoot it against a green screen. And I'm like, yes, an editor is going to give you an editor solution. It makes <laughs> sense. Right. But mm -hmm. um, in the end, if you mix it up and you, you know, if you're reserved about doing things digitally and you, and you do as much of it practically, you're still using those tools, but you're using them where they need to be. You know, you know, I just, I'm sure that there are other sort of, comparisons in other industries uh, like construction for example you wouldn't use a hammer for certain things but you would mm -hmm. use it to hammer a nail or to pull a nail um mm -hmm. yeah that's it <laughs> yeah 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 well i I'm, I'm super glad that um everyone now knows how to make fake blood so that that's a very <laughs> useful thing for all of our listeners um so so i i think a lot of people yeah, at least maybe maybe I'm just a very narrow perspective within this one, but I think a lot of people are are kind of swept away by the idea of movies and being in movies and making movies and you know, all of the glitter and twinkle of Hollywood and all of that stuff. And and especially in in America, we we prioritize that. We we really elevate that as as a society, good or bad. It, it's part of it. Um, for someone who's never really had that experience, you know, how, how do you go about starting it from, I know you have a very different process, but um, do people come to you and say, hey, I'd like to work on something with you. I have a script or what is that kind of uh, from the, the basic, the logistics of it? How does that happen? Well, it's not very romantic at all. It's um, <laughs> I've been in it so long now. It's just my regular lifestyle, but um 
it's really like I just texted this guy yesterday. I'm like, I know you had this idea for a superhero years ago and that you've talked about it off and on on social media, but I've never seen anything of it. Would you be open to doing like a no budget B movie and try to make a movie with the superhero? Because I really want to do a, a no budget B movie. I haven't heard back from him, but it'll either be yes or no. And if it's a yes, then we'll take it from there. And um, it's usually asking a lot of questions about like, what was your original vision? Here's what I want to do. Will it work? Um, and you just kind of, you kind of see what assets are available to you and you just go from there. Um, on a larger scale, it becomes a lot more complicated, especially when there's money involved mm -hmm. uh, because it's um, with the pilot, it becomes who's getting paid and why and what for. And um, the, the pilot they want to do for $300,000. And they're like, well, of that, what would you expect to be paid? And I told them that if it's, it depends on the time commitment and what I'm doing. If I'm more of an engineer trying to figure out how to do things, that's different than being a creative director. And I think that this with this pilot, I'm going to be more of an engineer. So here's what I would be paid for six months as an engineer <laughs> on your pilot. And, mm -hmm. you know, based on that, they liked it. And then they're like, all right. So then from a visual standpoint, what do we do? In this case, I just kind of told him, I want you to find 20 photographs and 20 paintings that look the way this show is supposed to look. Then get, send them to me and then we'll go from there. So that process is very different from, you know, the B movie that I want to do. And it's also going to be very different from this monster movie I'm developing, which is going to take many, many years and many, many binders of just dissecting what a monster is philosophically. <laughs> so the process really just depends on the project and how loosey-goosey I want to approach it. Hmm. Um, how many projects on average are you kind of working on or from all different stages if you had to like... All of them. them. All of them. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> You're like as many as I can. <laughs> yeah. So there's the client projects, which are mostly negotiations until they're real. Got and it. then there's the um, monster movie, which is my main movie that I'm trying to get off the ground right now. And that is, I'm currently in the stage of engineering three different monsters a scary monster, a fluffy, cuddly, like Muppet type monster, <laughs> uh, and then a more human looking. Uh, AI type of monster. And then there's my writing. I'm a, I have a writing background too. And so I'm always trying to do novels and short stories and submitting essays to publications. So I'm always doing that too. And then I have the podcast. Wow. I am the most busy person I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I'm not doing one thing, then I'm doing the other. Right. That's that's why on my website, if you go to my website, the header says Eric Norcross, mixed media rooted in cinema. Everything I do goes back to the cinema, but I'm not necessarily working on a movie, you right. know? Right. Um, I'm always working in media in some form. Eventually it'll go back to the movies, but to yeah. to say that I ever take a break would be a lie. I haven't been <laughs> on vacation since 2005. Well, Eric, maybe maybe at some point you deserve a, a little <laughs> bit of a break. But um, so so I want to now, with no disrespect, I, I want to kind of who do you look towards um, 
as doing good work uh, currently and maybe maybe in the in the past um who who do you kind of pull inspiration from specifically within that that film um genre that that sure. film medium but also if there's something you know a book or something that you're like hey this is really where I'm at I always like to kind of give people a, a landing pad to go on past this conversation yeah sure uh right now um one of my favorite filmmakers working right now is um, a guy named Sean Baker. I don't know if you've heard of him. He did, um, so he won Sundance some years back for the first feature film, at least to win a big award, uh, made on an iPhone. It was a movie called Tangerine. And this is why you now get iPhones with three lenses because <laughs> of this I guy. See. Um, and <laughs> they're like, oh, filmmakers can make award-winning films with our phones. We should probably take this seriously. It was this guy. And he followed it up with a movie called The Florida Project, which was about yeah. this impoverished family living outside of Disney. And they couldn't, you know, they're not the kind of family who could ever afford to go to Disney. And I'm like, this is a guy telling important, using the medium to tell important stories. Um, right. And so um, he's one of the few working today that I can really get behind. My main influences as a creative would be somebody like Matt Harrison, who did uh, his movie Rhythm Thief from the 90s. Uh, one Sundance the same year Ed Burns won for Brothers McMullen. Mm, um, mm. He he does uh, New York like really good gritty New York street films, um, and it, it, the Rhythm Thief is one of those movies I always watch before going into a project. Interesting. Uh, obviously, uh, we talked about David Lynch. David Lynch is is where it's at. But most of my influences do come from the the, the gallery scene. Every Thursday night. New York City galleries um, will open new exhibits and I'll just go and meet the artists and talk to the artists. I call it the Thursday night hustle. Um, <laughs> if you're ever in New York City and you want to get blazed and drunk without spending a dime, go to <laughs> go to these art galleries because they got wine, they got free wine and the artists are always there and you can just like drink and talk to them and you'll learn so much about creativity and what's going through a lot of these people's minds it's it's actually i would say it's more inspiring than film interesting well um biagio that's where we're going to be hosting the next gateway get a glass of merlot and we'll keep talking <laughs> right right exactly exactly right um Eric, I, for me, this has been absolutely enjoyable. And, and I know that as the busiest person, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I oh, do want to make sure. Thank, but thank you for, for your time. Um, I do want to make sure that we get in all of the ways that people can get in touch with you and mainly see see the work you've done. I sure. uh, I was happy enough to explore some of your your short films and, and, and the ones on YouTube. And I, I just absolutely loved your work. So how can how can people kind of see what you're doing? Sure. I got a website, ericnorcross.com. Um, I've had that for a number of years. It has, it's, it's sort of the go-to if you want to learn about all of the stuff I'm dabbling in. Um, it has trailers. It has information about books. It has my entire bio. It has a blog. It, it's got access. It, you can also get to my podcast through there. Perfect. Um, my YouTube channel is my main social media outlet that I've been actively trying to grow. I've been with YouTube since it was founded in 2005. Um, I also recently started taking TikTok very seriously. So that's blown up quite a bit. And um, TikTok's a great way to connect with me as well. Um, on Instagram, you know, I, I try to be on all the any, anything that's visual media related, I will try to be on it. 
No, I, I just wanted to say, like, especially for, for our listeners, like many of, of them are, are like students. I think the lesson is, uh, I mean, listening to you just for uh, 45 to 50 minutes is that you, you really had a passion and you went through a lot of trial and errors. And uh, up to now, you're still working very hard just to to continue to doing the work that you're doing. Uh, and, and I think it's a good message because oftentimes, sometimes, I mean, oftentimes people just say like, okay, let me try to give a shot at this uh, career opportunity. And then it doesn't go as well. And then we just give up and we pivot to something else. Although our passion and our, you know, uh, what we really like to do is, is, is in a different direction. I think what you're doing is a testament that uh, you, you need to, to work hard to, to all that you need to achieve. And sometimes you have to give up vacation for 20 years. So <laughs> well, <laughs> thank I, you. Thank you so much. Oh, for, yeah. Well, I think it really um, comes down to, one, people think they have to have a career and that that career has to have a certain story to it, whether it doesn't matter what you're trying to do, right? Uh, when you go home to Thanksgiving, you want to be able to tell your parents that you're making money at doing this and that it's normal. And this is not normal. And so it's yeah. like, um, I, I, one, I think that the Thanksgiving conversation drives people to want it to seem as normal as possible. So they might try it for five years. I know Ed Burns, for example, he gave himself to the age of 35 to quote unquote, make it. And I always thought that was a weird thing to say. Like, why, if you really want to do it, why would you put a time frame on having a career like just keep finding a way to do it certainly has the talent to keep doing it uh, and that's that's my philosophy about this like i'm not going to ask for permission if they want to work with me i'm more than open to collaboration i crave it i want it but in the at the end of the day i really want to do it and so i'm just going to find a way to keep doing it and that's it Eric, truly, this was this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, and everyone, make sure I will post all of the links that you were talking about earlier in the description. So, Eric, again, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by NIU's College of Business. Please make sure to subscribe to The Gateway. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you are so inclined, please feel free to give us those five-star ratings, which help allow us to continue to bring wonderful guests to the gateway. Thank you all for listening. And remember to love always the promise of tomorrow, today.